Gaming Podcast for late August 2019. My name is Tom Chick, and I am not playing Brass Lancashire. And this is Asan Lopez, and I am not playing Abomination, the heir of Frankenstein. What is that? Um, it's a meaty new upcoming worker placement from Plaid Hat. Right, you build up a, a Frankenstein monster with body parts. That thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I've seen I've seen it out in the in the wild, at least at Origins, and it looked pretty looked pretty interesting. I guess I didn't realize it was plaid hat. That uh, that gives a little bit more cred in my book. Okay. Sort of. They're 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 hit or miss. Um, they've they've had a string of uh, what I would say are mediocre titles lately, but I am always still curious about what they put out. I just Hassan having been playing a lot of amateur well, I say a lot of first game designer uh board games that don't work very well I would rather play a missed plaid hat than a missed <laughs> other designer I yeah, think fair enough totally yeah yeah uh so one of the knocks it's got going against it is uh ever since that Tom Cruise mummy movie I think the universal monsters are kind of out of favor so there's no point making games about them, right? <laughs> that, you know, and normally I would agree with you, but but here, here's the thing, actually, is that um, so I'm going to be talking about this game called Horrified, which I really think is a yet another reflection of this just amazing golden age of board games that we're finding ourselves in. Um, this is a game that was designed by a collaborative team called Prospero Hall, so there's no single designer that's listed behind it. But this is the same team that put out last year's uh, Disney Villainous game uh-huh. and the recent Jaws semi-co-op type thing game, which is getting pretty rave reviews right now. Mm-hmm. And if you think about that, that's like three mass market games that traditionally like i mean just imagine a mass market jaws board game that would have come out in like 1975 and <laughs> i'm not saying one didn't but if it did it would have been just total shit right exactly and, right, right um and even 10 years ago the probability that a a disney themed board game would actually be interesting and have clever mechanics would have just been zero right i I remember mike talking about that and me thinking that initially and and mike bringing me around and thinking oh right yeah the mike seemed to express they did a pretty cool job with villainous yeah yeah it's um i mean it's it's hard i don't know tom how much thought you put into this but it's hard to point at any specific events that really turned board game board gaming design around. I mean, I think most people would say that things really started to shift in the 2000s. Um, and I don't know if it's one of those things where there were critical design events, like particular games that really inspired new directions, or it's just one of these evolutionary things where l- gradually, little by little, board game design has just gotten better. Um, I mean, do you, have, do you have thoughts about that? I actually kind of half facetiously, half seriously uh, think that the turning point was pandemic, right? Uh, with right. a and that that where I I joke that that's where we invented good board game design because I think that's where we started to realize you know people people the the model of board gaming where you sit down and you play Monopoly and you each have your side of the table like that kind of got busted with pandemic by popularizing. Uh, co-op play, and I think Matt Leacock did a wonderful job with asymmetry and with pacing there, uh, and I think its popularity made a lot of people think, oh, look at the cool things that's doing. Maybe we should come up with cool stuff. Now, that's partly arbitrary on my point, Hassan. Uh, would you have a, would you, exp- like, would you explain the change differently? 
Um, I, I don't think it's an easy thing to parse out. I think it's right. fun to think about and it's fun to talk about. And um, I'm, I strongly suspect that it's more gradual evolutionary change, just, you know, ideas building on ideas and designers building on designers. But I do think there have been some landmark games that have kind of changed the landscape and kind of informed um companies and designers like oh that's totally new and i would absolutely agree that pandemic was was one of those moments it was like a watershed moment in modern board gaming and it certainly um you can see the inspirational roots in horrified in in pandemic so it's definitely something that you're you're you'll be thinking about if you pick up horrified so it is a co-op game so or solitaire it is it's um it is a simple cooperative game for for one to five players. I'm gonna I'm gonna argue that it's better co-op than solo. I've played it huh. both. Okay. Um, um, in which yeah, you and your teammates are playing as like these heroic figures. In uh, imagine that you're inside of a classic horror movie, right? And it's a very unlucky town. This is not a town that's facing one monster, but you're facing several usually. So it's like you're up against the Wolfman and Dracula and the creature from the Black Lagoon. And you might take on the role of a scientist and one of your friends is taking on the role of the archaeologist and the mayor. And so you each have different roles and your goal is to defeat these creatures before they take over the town and kill everybody. And they actually are called like creatures. Like these are licensed universal things, just like Jaws is a, a universal right. property. Okay, and, and Villainous is Disney. Uh, that's right. Yeah, and and that's I, I mean again, that's the sort of striking thing is like you know, ten fifteen years ago, you would have picked this up and it would have just been an awful cash in, right. trying to just make some money off of an audience that has some nostalgia for these monster movies. But this is a legitimately good game. Um, I don't want to spoil my opinion, but. It's this this team, this design team knows what they're doing for sure. Now, do you know their Jaws game? I don't. That's that's something that as I've read more and more reviews of, I've been increasingly interested in. And I'm a fan of Jaws and I know you're a huge fan of Jaws. So I had a friend bring it over and I was a little disappointed to see that it's just kind of a hidden movement-y thing. And, mm. and I'm not sold on this whole idea that it's too stages of gameplay that you uh. play the shark running around the island and eating people and then based on how sh strong the shark gets you then go to the finale where the shark's attacking the boat uh and another thing i noticed and this sort of thing sticks out for me uh none of the actors likenesses are in the game and, mm. and that, that kind of you know they can use their names uh and i understand that that's a licensing issue but that that sort of thing drives me batty like in uh the alien legendary game they yep. didn't really get the likenesses for any of the actors. And in fact, some of the characters, for whatever reason, they don't even include. I think there's no, is it, there's no, there's no Vasquez, for instance. And I don't know if that's, again, a, a licensing thing, if they, if they couldn't get Jeanette Goldstein's permission or something <laughs> right. to draw her picture. But anyway, when I, when I look at a Jaws game and I realize, wait a minute, there's no – you know, they're just doing cutesy artwork. There's no – and they're not even trying to make someone look like Roy Scheider or Richard right. Dreyfuss or Robert Shaw. So right. Right. my own – because I'm such a Jaws fan, I, I just have these little nitpicks about it that probably aren't fair. 
Um, yeah. No, that, but that, that, feels, that feels like a legitimate disconnect. I think the appeal of a mass market game, in a sense, is that you you really do want to feel like you're inside of that movie or whatever it is. And if they don't have the rights to that, that's kind of disappointing. Right, exactly. Like, they obviously have the rights to, to Jaws, but they just couldn't get the actor's likenesses, which, uh, you know, since two out of three of them are dead, that's kind of not surprising. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, so this, you don't have to worry about that because you can always draw a picture of the creature from the Black Lagoon. And, That's right. And the classic Dracula. Uh, That's right. All right, so multiple monsters besieging this town. First of all, that's super unlikely, like you right. said, unlucky town. <laughs> uh, and you don't play the monsters, right? You're, the monsters are things you're fighting against. That's right. They're run by the game system. So, okay. Um, yeah, so so in, it, it's a this is another another manifestation of our golden age is that not only does this game have fairly solid mechanics, um, if if a little um, sort of derivative, but it also has solid components like the graphic design, mm-hmm. the art. Um, each of the monsters has its own mini, which is pretty cute, um, and. And when you lay the map out in front of you, it really does pop out as a cool horror movie town. There's the cave and the graveyards and the crypt and the the institute. And one of the one of the first things you do after you set up and you know fold out the map is you seed items around the map, and they come in three different flavors: colors, red, blue, and yellow. I think red's physical items, blue are intellectual, yellow is like spiritual or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you seed the map with these different flavors. And one thing I quite like is you're going to be running around and collecting these items in an attempt to defeat the monsters. But one thing I quite like is that the items are linked to specific locations on the map. So thematically, they kind of make sense. So you might get a, a rifle, a red rifle item pop up on the map, and that belongs in the barn. And it'll tell you, put this in the barn. Or you might see a blue centrifuge pop up, and that's going to show up in the laboratory. So you're not going to get weird situations like a centrifuge in the barn, right? And and these are, uh, there's, this isn't a scenario-based thing, right? Like, you, no. this is just randomly seeded every time you play uh, with items in specific areas. Yeah, and the only exception to that is probably the most clever piece of the puzzle which i won't reveal just yet um okay which which does make it feel somewhat like a scenario based game even okay. though it's not but the the primary structure of the game will be would be familiar to anyone who's played a modern cooperative and here's really where the the pandemic roots come in you know on your turn you're going to take several actions typically four and uh, those actions are going to include, for example, moving from one location to another in this town, following these paths that are going to be laid out for you, picking up items in your locations, trading items with other players. Like, again, like if you, if, if you played Pandemic, you're going to feel really at home and you're going to be wondering, oh, well, what's new and different about this? Um, now, I think and, of Pandemic, though, as holding back cubes. Uh, right, right, the, right. The monster, uh, monsters aren't running around dropping cubes, are they? No, they're not, and I kind of like that. You're not trying to put out fires. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one neat innovation in this game is that instead, um, their villagers are going to be popping up periodically. So after you run through your four actions, you reveal a card from the so-called monster deck. And again, that's kind of the game fighting back against you, right? And it's going to seed some more items on the map. It's also going to cause um, an event to happen, and often those events are um, a a particular character from one of these classic movies will show up on the map right so the you know um, I don't I'm trying to remember some of them like there's a delivery boy that shows up on the map at some point and 
they're just they're just waiting to be eaten basically they're just going to be sitting there on the map and if a monster ends up in their space they'll eat them and that will rack up the terror rating and if the terror gets too high you lose the game right uh, so you're not just hunting the monsters you're saving the town okay that's, that makes that's sense. right so you have to escort these villagers to a particular place and each one wants to go someplace and if you escort them not only do they disappear from the map they're safe but you also get um a reward for that so it's a it's a yeah you're being you're still being torn in two directions right you're still having to collect items to defeat the monsters but you're also having to save villagers and those are the two things that you're kind of that are dividing your attention and that sounds like pandemic-y in terms of I need to get the location cards and then I need to take the card to that location and, uh, yeah, just that's arbitrarily right. pulled around to different places. That's right. Uh, now, so there's how many monsters is it? Four? Five? So I think there – I'm trying to remember. I think there's six, six or seven. Let's uh, see if you can name them. I mean, you mentioned Wolfman, Frankenstein, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Dracula. What, right. what two are left? Invisible Man? The Mummy, the Invisible Man. Ah, um, and I know, and I know that Frankenstein and the Bride are both in there. Um, as a, oh, as right, a there are two for though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and okay. that might be it. Yeah, that might be it. And, uh, and they're, they're the stars of the game for sure, because the, the clever, the clever thing that I was holding on to um, is that each monster is requires sort of a different set of of things that you need to do in order to defeat them so every time you play you're going to be playing with anywhere between two and four monsters that's kind of the difficulty rating of the game so three monsters is a standard difficulty game two would be easy mode and four is super hard it's not that it scales by player um no and in fact i would argue that that's that's a problem in the game this is a game that's much easier with lower player counts so oh, when you're okay. playing solo it's too easy right. so if you're soloing it you really do want to play with with four monsters probably and uh, real quick was that was that your argument for why you think it's better co-op than solitaire no i think that's okay. more complicated um, okay well hold, hold that thought then because you want yeah, well, yeah <laughs> i want to hear about these monsters and how what makes them distinct and what kind of ai drives them yeah it's 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 there's there's not much difference in the AI. The, the the monster deck does a pretty decent job of sort of randomly activating monsters, and then they'll kind of just hone in on the closest target to them, and mm-hmm. and then once they if they land on you, they'll try to attack you. Um, and if you if you you never die if you get knocked out, it, it increases the terror rating, and then you just wake up in the hospital again. Um, right. Whereas if villagers die, that they presumably die, right? Right. But what's interesting about the monsters is that um, Dracula, for example, to defeat him, when you're setting up the game, you put four of his coffins around the map. So one of them is going to be in the crypt, one of them is going to be in the cemetery, right? There's another in the cave. And the first thing you need to do to defeat Dracula is to go around and smash his four coffins. Mm -hmm. And to do that, you'd have to discard red items that, that... add up to a value of at least six each item also has a numerical value on it so you go to one of the coffins you discard like a gun and you smash that coffin right so you first do that and then once you've smashed his four coffins you can then confront dracula and you have to land on his face and then you have to use yellow items which are things like crosses and garlic and again you need to have a certain numerical value and then that would defeat him and he's removed from the game so are all these items just a suit and a numerical value or does it it, okay yeah yeah yeah. so they're a color right yeah they're a color and a number that's right So it's not like a cross does anything differently from a garlic it's just different degrees of yellowness that's right you got it yeah okay um and so that's how 
Dracula works, but for example, Frankenstein and the Bride work totally differently. For them, you're trying to, they each come with like a dial that's on their monster board, and you're trying to crank up their humanity. And then once you crank up their humanity again by typically cashing in particular types of items, um, then you want them to actually land on the same space so that they fall in love with each other and that that gets rid of them, right? So, that's very um, sweet. Yeah. Um, and the Wolfman, you have to research a cure for him. So each each of them is, I mean, I'm not going to say that each one is completely different, right? Because in the end, for all of the monsters, you are going to be still running around collecting items of different colors and numbers, using those items in specific locations, and then usually confronting the monsters, right? So that, that formula is the same. But there's just enough variety in how each of the monster plays out that it's it's fun to explore them. And when you're trying to juggle three of those all at the same time, it really does lead to some, some interesting problems. Uh, tell me about the mummy real quick. <laughs> the mummies, the each one's also rated on a complexity scale, and the mummy's the most complicated. Um, okay. I like them a lot, so... He has a set of scarab ruins in his tomb, and you have to reveal them and put them in a particular pattern. It's kind of like a little puzzle, a mini puzzle that you have to solve. And then once you solve that puzzle, he can be defeated. So, um, yeah, he's, he's, he's interesting. I, I did see the mummy thing online and thought that's, that would hurt my head. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not as hard as you as you think. Like this, and in case I didn't emphasize this, this is a family level cooperative game. This is truly um, a gateway intro level co op game, which is absolutely what they were going for. And I think they hit that in spades. Like they really knock it out of the park. Like I'd much rather show this to people as a as an introductory co-op game than even pandemic to be right. honest with you i think it's the theme is really fun i think it's very easy to teach um it's maybe too forgiving but mm -hmm. that that also is maybe good for for people who are just getting into co-op games well just add a fourth monster it sounds right. like yeah right uh, and also hassan there's a better way to say i've, I've discovered this uh instead of saying family game because that'll scare people off uh, call it beer and pretzels <laughs> that's less scary yeah. uh, all right so this sounds like a perfect game for solitaire i choose four different characters uh you know three monsters uh what's to, wh why do i need to press my friends into service with this thing all right all right so yeah so tom let's have a conversation about this because okay. I, I think it's it's kind of it's a it is a very subjective thing but it's the i think it's this interesting distinction between what makes a good cooperative game like truly cooperative in the sense you want to play it with other people versus what makes a good solitaire game mm -hmm. um in the sense of something you'd much rather play by yourself right mm -hmm. and i think you and i are similar in that i, I usually bounce off of co-ops like it's not really my style of game and it's not my game group style like they don't really want to spend an evening um cooperating in a game they'd rather they'd rather be at each other's throats right mm -hmm. but um there are times when i when i really enjoy a co-op game and i think that the, I'm, I'm making this up as i go along but i think there have to be a few ingredients one mm -hmm. is that i think that they should have a strong narrative to them and 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 that's true for solo too but i think that the narrative has to be something where you're really laughing as you're as you're going through the game and really enjoying the string of events that's happening and 
the the game that really pops out here as an example of this is Black Orchestra. Have you have you played that one, Tom? I have chance? not, but I know of it from uh, one of our contributors, Bruce Garrick, has talked about it. Yeah, it's it's got a fantastic narrative. I mean, it's a it's a co-op game about the plot to assassinate Hitler, mm-hmm. and I would argue that its narrative is probably its strongest element. It really it it does a nice job of mimicking certain historical events and. Um, but at the same time, allowing for each game to play out differently. There's really awesome moments of tension. And it's a it's a narrative that you want to share with other people. That is not a game I would want to play solo because I would I would feel like I it's like it's like I want to be playing this with other people so they can so they can watch the same story that I'm watching. Sure. I think okay. that's how that's how it works. OK. Uh, and the, and the uh, horrified has a, a similar conceit in that it's these story beats about running around town and trying to stop the monsters and save the villagers that is a similarly similarly strong narrative okay that you would want to share with people right yeah i think so i think it's fun and it's fun to celebrate when people do kind of fun and interesting and clever things Mm -hmm. um yeah i don't think um i I think if a co-op game is too tight or solvable um that's that's a problem so because I, then you're you're only going to be as good as the weakest link at the table, right. Right. That's right? I think Pandemic suffers from that. Like I, I think once you play Pandemic enough, and I've heard other people say this too, I think it does become solvable in the sense that like there's usually like a best choice decision to do. Right. Yep. And then you're really suffering from the player who's most experienced, kind of slight, you know, either directly bossing other people around or kind of subtly bossing them around. Or if the other people playing the game know what they're doing they should turn to the guy who best knows the game and say what should i do if they want to win i also think pandemic's a horrible game for new players because uh it's really discouraging like it's really about slowly realizing oh we're losing there's nothing i can do everything's closing in it and you you just spend several turns failing like i think i think pandemic was cool back in the time but these days i I think it's a horrible game to introduce new players to board gaming (laughs) right Uh, right right so but this sounds like because it's forgiving uh this sounds like it doesn't have that like somebody at the table can be really bad at board gaming and it won't screw up the experience of playing horrified you're saying exactly exactly i mean and again i think that's why it's in for example a good match for kids i played this with my eight-year-old and she was doing great right um and there's 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 just enough random wobbleness in the game too that it's also not solvable because of that like where the items pop up and when the monsters attack they roll dice and you know and pretty much whatever she decides to do it's going to be a step towards solving towards beating one of the three monsters exactly like it would be hard for her to screw things up by not doing an optimized move yeah that's exactly it's like what do you want to do oh yep that sounds great do it right right now now does this uh because i still think this sounds like a perfectly cromulent solitaire game uh just like an easy laid back one yeah Uh, yeah i i I think well that has to do with my very last ingredient which is that i think um I don't think co-op games should be too complex and crunchy. That's that's where I like my solitaire games. And I think that this this is a great co-op because it's it's so easy to explain, it's so easy for people to understand how the collaboration works effectively. Um, you know, something like Robinson Crusoe, I just would never want to play that oh, co-op, right? <laughs> Talk or, about people screwing you up, right, exactly. Yeah. Or, or even Spirit <laughs> Island. Like, I, can, I guess I can imagine, like, couples playing Spirit Island, and if they both know the game super well. But those are games that are so crunchy and so complex that I want to 
I want to interact with that puzzle by myself. Um, right. My gut just says that if, just as an example, Tom, if like if you played Horrified, I think you would find it as a solo experience too too simple, and you would play it once, or maybe you'd play through each of the monsters, but then you you wouldn't want to play it again. I'm right. not sure. You know, it it does sound like. Uh... The kind of people like me who are snooty enough to say, you know what, all co-op games are essentially solitaire. Like, it's it's below my lightness threshold. Right, right. Uh, if, if you're that kind of person who thinks that solitaire and co-op are conflated too often, uh, you're probably not going to be interested in Horrified. <laughs> right. From no, a complexity it, it, level. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's been fun playing it because it has forced me to kind of think about like what, what games I prefer to play with other people that are cooperative and which cooperative games I much prefer to play solo. Um, and yeah, I, I I have, like I said, I played this one solo and you're right in the sense that it was like a really mellow, like I was just drinking a beer. It took me less than an hour. It was super like after a day's work, you just want to sit down and play something pretty, pretty mellow and light. Um, and it looks really attractive. It doesn't take up that much table space. I set it up on my work desk, and it was, you know, boom, done, right? If, if you were to play 10 games, how many of them would you win? Mm, well, I mean, at the at the baseline difficulty of three monsters, right. I, I think 9 out of 10. Wow, okay, yeah, right, right. Because that, yeah. that, for me, that that's a, a not necessarily a problem, but that right there, if it's not going to push back like that, but I guess, yeah, you, yeah right. Okay, yeah. well, that I says think, a lot, too, I think, about the the design well i think that the, the 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 what it's not what's not tweaked correctly is the so if you're playing solo right you can play with just one character and right. i i don't think that the game is is tweaked for that effectively like i really do think if you played it solo you'd want to play with two or three characters um, and just mimic like you were playing with other people. And then and then the difficulty would actually feel right. Because what ends up happening is you move a character onto a space. Like, let's say you move the scientist onto the barn. You collect some items, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And Dracula is pretty far away at that point. Mm-hmm. And then you draw a monster card. Oh, Dracula moves one space closer to you. All right. But now it's somebody else's turn. And then it's somebody else's turn. And so by the time it's your turn again, Dracula might be right on you, attacking you. And you might have gotten hit already. I see. Right. 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 Whereas if, if it's just one player, you can just respond too easily and too quickly to the movement of the monsters. They're just not. They're not fast enough to get right. to you. You can you can easily avoid them, and so your only solution there is to clog the map up with four monsters. In which case it becomes yeah, then it becomes really really tight because the town isn't that big. Do do the rules suggest that you could play with just one character? They say yeah, if you play okay. solo, play with one character. You do start at a higher base terror rating, so you have much oh, right. less wiggle room for error. But um, it, it, no, I would. I, I think if people play the solo, you should play three characters. Just do it. Um, it's not that big of a deal, and that that feels just right. Right. Now, uh, finally, I'm curious. You say you played with your uh, eight-year-old daughter. How does she know who, like Frankenstein monster and creature <laughs> from the Black Lagoon? And doesn't she think of Dracula? Shouldn't he be like sparkling and in love with Kristen Stewart? Or what? It, <laughs> what is her take on these classic Universal movie monsters? Yeah, she has she has no take on them whatsoever. <laughs> so I know, oh, yeah, like she, um, and I, I that was part. She enjoyed the game fine, but she, it didn't totally connect with her. Um, she was just pleased that we didn't have to kill the Wolfman, that we were curing him, <laughs> um, and she was happy that we were trying to make Frankenstein fall in love. 
the fact that we actually had to drive a stake through Dracula's heart, like she was not super <laughs> into that. Um, does she think? Because I remember this always freaking me out as a kid, and I think this is one of those few Universal movies that I still find interesting to watch. Did she realize how freaky the creature from the Black Lagoon looks? That's a weird looking dude. Did she react to that at all? Like that thing's scary looking. It is pretty creepy looking. Now, yes, and she, 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 she liked it. She, she found right. the mini really interesting. It didn't bother her at all. But she's also read Swamp Thing, so she's she, ah. she's she's a comic book aficionado. So all right, I don't know. The Swamp Thing's pretty pretty weird looking compared to a creature from Black Lagoon. Right, right, right. Uh, all right, horrified, petrified, horrified, scared. I'm, so abominable is the one where you build Frankenstein. Horrified is the one where you've got Frankenstein and friends going, right? That's right. Okay, yep. good, good. Um, I want to tell you about a Martin Wallace game. Um, Hassan Lopez, do you have a favorite Martin Wallace game? Oh, my God. That is Because they're, they're very different from me. A lot of they, them are very different from me. Yeah, they are. He's done so many different games. And some um, of them you've made, some, some Martin Wallace games kind of terrible yeah no i know um i i quite like london so that's one of my favorite martin there's wallace. a martin wallace game just called london <laughs> what do you do in it um you kind of rebuild london after its big fire or something oh. like that yeah okay um, city builder kind of thing all right and there's there's a there's a newer I've, I've only played the first edition of london which i quite like um there's a a newer version of it which looks gorgeous which i have not played but people have said that it's even better and i'm trying to think of other of other wallaces i've played it it's it has not been a lot um he's he's one of these designers that i haven't dipped into as much as i want i still have a copy of Wildlands, um, I think, in the shrink on my shelf, which I've never played, and I really mm. want to play it. We're going to have to talk about that, because I think there's some really cool things going on in Wildlands, so yeah. Uh, yeah. when you manage to get into that, let me know, and I'd love to talk about that. Um, yeah. That, that, by the way, is super atypical uh, Martin Wallace design. I almost right. feel like it's like a Tom, some Tom Clancy novels, somebody else wrote them and he put his name on them. I wonder if some of that's going on with Martin Wallace. Like, he basically had someone do wildlands he's like okay this is cool let me tidy some stuff up and then we'll put my name on it i don't know but uh i think i i he's just he's just so interesting as a designer he's very interesting he's prolific yeah. right i mean it's kind of like vlada Chavadal, where he does such a wide range of right. games that it's hard to predict what he's gonna do next right i, right, I, exactly. I love that about those guys yeah. There are definite points of commonality. You can see like Martin Wallaceisms uh, in some of his games, and uh, one of my favorites is a, actually I would say my favorite is a Study in Emerald, which is kind of a deck builder where you move around and kind of control cities, but there's all this crazy stuff happening. Uh, one of his earlier games, which I'd never played, it's not true actually. Someone had showed me Brass a long time ago, and I remember not quite wrapping my head around it the first playthrough. And then we moved on to something else. And it was only after I was given a copy for Christmas of Brass Birmingham, which is a reissue of Brass, kind of a reboot and retooling of Brass. Uh, I got it last Christmas and set it up and realized, oh, I played this before when it was just regular Brass, before they were divided into Brass Lancashire and Brass Birmingham. Um, so, And it, it has points of commonality with other Martin Wallace games in that it's a board with a bunch of cities on it. And so far, studying Emerald, same thing. Board with a bunch of cities on it. You draw a hand of five cards. Same thing as studying Emerald. Draw a hand of five cards. You now use these five cards to interact with the board. 
in studying Emerald, it's some territory control stuff, and you're bringing out Cthulhu, and zombies might happen, and you're assassinating each other. In Brass, you use these five cards to, this is a very typical Euro gamey kind of thing, to build industries. Uh, and it's the Midlands, I think, of England, where you're building coal mines and ironworks, and uh, you're building a textile mill, that kind of thing. So the basic mechanic of take five cards, and each card, by the way, is either an industry or a location on the build, uh, on the on the board. Take five cards and then do stuff with them on the board. Uh, so when you have a game of brass and you've got the five cards, each one is either an industry or a location. You also have in front of you, and this is now nothing like studying Emerald, stacks and stacks of little chits representing different industries. And it is your goal to get those, because in front of you, they don't do you any good. It is your goal to get them on the board. And once they're on the board, they still don't do you any good. Hmm. It's only when they're on the board and they get somehow exploited or used up or uh, their, their, their goods are consumed, basically. Uh, then the little chit flips over, and I'm going to get points for it at the end of the game. So you are not only building a little economic engine, you're not only putting the ingredients for this economic uh, lattice work of, of goods and services, you're not just building that on the, on the map, you're trying to make sure that the elements you've added get exploited, get used up, at which point it flips over and now you're getting points. Right. Uh, so every time, and this is super elegant too about brass, every time you take a turn, you're going to burn one card. So the cards are also a great clock. Uh, and, and in an odd way, it's a two-act game in that you go through the whole deck. Each time you do an action, you're going to burn a card, and then you replace the card at the end of your turn. So you've got eight, you've got uh, cards in your hand again. And then when the deck is empty, you're done with the first era. You shuffle the deck, you play a second era, and then the game is over. So hmm. the cards are a very simple, ruthless clock. Whenever I do something, even if it has nothing to do with the card, I have to discard a card. So normally you discard a card, you put out one of your industries, and it's just sitting there waiting to be exploited. And maybe in a later action you will do something that will flip it, and it'll get you points. But the unique thing about Brass, uh, and I think this is true of both Birmingham and Lancashire. I'm talking about Birmingham, which I think is the more accessible one. Uh, the unique thing about Brass is when other people are putting their industries out there and are trying to flip them, they are interacting with your industries. So in a unique way, this is a economic like engine builder where we're all working on the same engine and each of our parts is interacting with other parts and things that I do might give you points and things that you do might give me points. And it's mm -hmm. necessary that way. And here's an example of how one of the things that it does. A coal mine is a very basic thing you build. And I put my little coal mine tile out there. You know, I've either played a card that says coal mine, and then I put the coal mine anywhere where it's slotted, or I play a card that has a city name, and then I put the coal mine in that city. So as I'm looking at my cards, I realize, okay, I can I have this much flexibility with these types of industries. I have this much flexibility with these locations. So I put a coal mine out there, and then I take four little black cubes that represent coal, and I stick them directly on top of the coal mine. And now there's four points of coal sitting on the map. Anytime somebody does something on the map, like build an ironworks, or uh, build a railroad uh, connection, or um, you know build uh, build anything that requires coal, they use up my coal first before they have to buy it from the market. 
So if I know somebody's going to do stuff that uses up coal, I'm going to build coal mines because then they're going to use my coal. And the moment the last little coal cube is taken off of that mine, it flips over and now it's earning me points. If it doesn't flip over, if I'm building coal mines and there's no demand for coal, not only am I stupid at reading supply and demand, I'm not going to get any points. So the whole idea is to look at the map and figure what's going to be needed, what's available. Uh, if you're also building coal mines, maybe I'll build some over here that are closer to places that are that are going to use coal. Because oh, okay. the rule is you take the closest coal available. doesn't That's matter who, what the player yeah. is. And I can't opt, by the way. There's also a market. If I want to build something that takes coal and nobody has built coal mines, that's fine. I just have to pay extra money to build it. And then the coal comes off of a market, and that market gets emptied. And so later on, by the way, if you build all the things that require coal, Hassan, and then you take all this this coal off of this little marketplace, and each one you take, it gets more expensive, and the little cubes are sitting on a marketplace, kind of like power grid, where you see how much they're worth at each tier. You've then depleted that market of coal before I could build a coal mine. So you think you're pretty clever. But the moment I build a coal mine, the first thing it does is it fills any empty spots on the market, and I get the money based on how you depleted the market. So you can't, there's going to be, as you're building up stuff, a demand for coal, even if it's taken off the marketplace. When I then build my coal mine, I get money for that coal because the marketplace drinks it up and now coal is cheaper to buy. Um, So I love the interactivity of this and I love how it's not like a zero sum game where everything I'm doing is only getting me points. Stuff that I do that gets me points also necessarily helps you. Uh, And I just love that element of interactivity in terms of representing like what business is really like. Uh, You know, if if we're all developing the Midlands of England, uh, we're necessarily going to be doing things that help each other. You know, no capitalist is an island. Everybody's interacting with everybody else's effects on supply and demand and the industries they build. Um, So I just love that unique mechanic. and, and how it, as we're populating the board with all this stuff, uh, we are helping each other and trying to block each other in unique ways. Yeah, uh, it, I, I love that idea, too. I mean, it it takes the notion of, of this, you know, of, of a so-called semi-cooperative and just makes it very organic and natural and something that follows what we see in in actual economic systems right Um, exactly like you can't you can't diversify to such a degree that you're self-sufficient you have to rely on other people yeah that's really cool there are also some weird conceits here that i think are i don't know if they're in jokes about england or something um but beer is hugely important here Oh, I've heard about this. Yeah, you need you need beer for certain uh, to do certain things in the game, right? And, and it really seems random. You need beer to transport goods. I think <laughs> right. the idea being that the stevedores need to be gotten they need to get drunk after work or something. So if I've opened a textile mill, because obviously with the coal mines and the ironworks, that's pretty straightforward. You put little raw material cubes on them, and then when things are built, they drink up those cubes. And when the cubes are used up, it flips the industry over, and now I'm getting points for it. Then there are things that that are creating manufactured goods, like textile mills. Uh, there's a little crate, which I think is actually called manufactured goods. Uh, there's a pottery kiln. Uh, and when you put those out, you have to bring about – you have to flip them by connecting them to an external marketplace and then paying beer – 
to get them transported. Uh, and it's a weird conceit because beer is super rare. Like you might think, yeah, coal's expensive. Oh, iron, you know, it's going to be hard getting iron out there. But beer is always the 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 <laughs> choke point. Like you always need more beer. Uh, and as soon as someone puts a beer uh, the a beer making what do you call them? a distillery where do you make beer a brewery brewery right you brew beer right of course i, I hate beer I can't, I can't believe it so whenever you build a brewery there's like a rush to okay i need that beer for my textile mill to get the the textile mills exported to the marketplace so there's this weird conceit where everybody loves beer and everybody needs beer and beer is a fundamental part of the, part of the economy uh which is weird to me and i guess maybe a british thing um, <laughs> Can you uh, drink up your own beer? Like yes, you can use your own stuff, right? You can, yeah. and that's one of the things too. Is you want to build your brewery where nobody else can reach it? Because right. there's also, and this is, uh, you know, Martin Wallace. I'm sure anybody who loves these kind of economic games loves transportation, like the transportation logistics of it. So one of the things that you're building in the first era, which is I guess like pre like early industrial, pre-steam engine, I guess. The first era, you're building canal connections. Uh, and the second era, then you can build railroad connections. Right. Um, so wherever you build a connection, you're creating a network of stuff that's linked. Um, and if you link other people, like that's another thing where you can help get someone – uh, get someone's network to beer or get their textile factory to an external market like you can help set those connections up but then when you're scoring points your railroad and canal nodes score you points based on if they're near any chits that got flipped mm. so if you're flipping your coal mines and your textile mills that's great you're earning points but if i'm the one who's built all the little railroad and canal connections around it I'm earning points as well, which again is that collaborative thing. I helped you get those goods to market, but I earned the points from it by creating that network. Mm -hmm. um, so again, it's just super interactive and collaborative. Uh, the beer thing is weird, uh, and it's also one of those games that because these mechanics are kind of unique, this idea that, hey, I'm building a coal mine because I know that you need that coal and you're going to help me get me points – and you now have to decide if you're going to build and get coal and get me points or if you're just going to change what you were going to do. I think you have to play it once and maybe even twice to wrap your head around what's going on with the economy. Right. Because I remember the first time my friend showed me brass, and he explained the rules, and I just started playing. I had no idea what's going on, and it was the same thing when I got this copy of Brass Birmingham is I read the rules, and I thought, well, okay, I understand how stuff happens, but I don't quite understand why stuff happens or why I would want to do any given thing. Um, so it's it, it's also fun to introduce this game to people and then watch them play, and at a certain point, things click. Uh, right. And generally, that will happen after you've gotten a head start and you're probably going to win because it's <laughs> right. one of those games where somebody who knows the game is definitely going to win over somebody learning it. Uh, right. But it's really gratifying watching people uh, wrap their heads around it. Uh, yeah. One, one more thing that it does that I hate in in uh, economic games. There's a there's a wonderful, lovely video game called Off World Trading Company about creating industries on Mars. Mm, I know and, this game. Yeah. And and I can play the basics of it. Like I understand. Okay, the colony needs oxygen. I'm going to build oxygen farms. Okay, there's iron over here, and iron is rare. I'm going to export this iron and sell it for high prices. That's great. One of the huge elements of 
off-world trading company is this idea of your company being in debt and it hurts you but it also helps you if you have access to all this additional capital you can spend and i suck at this concept like i my feeling is if i'm in debt i, I suck i'm losing right. but that's not how you play off-world trading company you have <laughs> to manage this idea you have to be able to take loans push yourself into the negative and deal with it. That's part of how you do well and win, is recognizing when it's okay to have a negative balance. And right. I suck at that because a negative balance, that's failure. You know, you want to be above zero. You want a positive number. So in Brass Birmingham, you can take out a loan. And it's an action. You have to burn a card. So it's going to be one of the things that runs down the clock. It's every, every turn you get two actions. And you just take 30 gold from the bank. And you never have to pay that gold back, <laughs> which is awesome. That's a loan I understand. That's debt I understand. What it does instead is it just drives your income level, the amount of money you get every turn, down a few notches. Uh -huh. And that I can wrap my head around. Like, okay, I'm going to earn 19 gold next turn. If I take a loan and get 30 gold, then I'm only going to earn 16 gold next turn. That sounds like a good deal to me. Go for it. <laughs> Uh, so I just love how the loans don't require me to really think about them as loans in terms of interest or paying them back or having a negative value. You just scoot a little bit back on the income track, and then you get a whole bunch of money dumped into your lap. I love that. Yeah, yeah Wallace, he loves loans in his games. And I, I, I agree with you that I think it's that's another element that for new players is confounding usually. Yeah. Like I, I remember playing London. It just took me a couple times to realize like, oh, yeah, you want to – you want loans and in fact you probably the best strategy is to take out a whole bunch and in that in that game you do need to pay them back but it's it's absolutely worth it but you don't know that the first time you play the game right right, right you're going right. to be very hesitant about borrowing money right um but if you take out a bunch of loans and get a massive amount of capital early in the game you can you can just dominate and roll your way through the rest right so but then later on you have to pay back those loans and that's money you can't use right 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 yeah <laughs> the other thing that i can't wrap my head around and i hate this worse than loans uh stock market games Right. Ugh. Right, right. No, why do I want you to do well? Uh, oh, because I bought your stock. Okay. Oh, that just makes no sense to me. Right. I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. I, I, I do. I like the idea, the notion of stock market games, but I, I find it a little confusing when I'm not like. Maybe I am running my own company, but I'm also potentially buying stock in your guys' companies. I find right. that vexing. Like, no, no, I just want us to, like, we're each running our own company. Whoever has the most money at the end wins. Right? Exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm losing the game because my company is doing well. What? <laughs> that's insane. Because you have more stock in my company? No, that's not real. That, I don't I don't accept that economic model in a board game. <laughs> would you Would you put Brass as one of your top economic games? I Oh. I, I don't really have... A, an exceptional economic game in my collection, like something that really, really, really stands out. Like I have Tesla versus Edison, which I like, but it's not fantastic. And I've been really sorely tempted by the new edition of Brass because this is this is the Roxley edition, right? Which is just beautiful and and amazingly produced. There, uh, there's a really nice version of it, and then there's a super deluxe version of it that comes with uh, clay poker chips instead of chits for the money. <laughs> but even just with the cardboard counters, it looks lovely. One of the things that it's a two-sided board, and the sides are identical except that one of them is. Uh, just a, a regular white background with the stuff. I mean, they both look lovely, but 
one side is day and the other side is night, right. which gives it, you know, these coal mines at night. And it's it just looks Dickensian, uh, <laughs> which I, I really love that night side. But, yeah, the production value on the new ones is, is excellent. And, yeah, I think as far as just the interactivity of it, it you know, the, the problem is on it's really kind of just esoteric. Um, and that's part of what I love about it, but that might be one reason that I wouldn't widely recommend it. Um, do you know uh, Uwe Rosenberg's Le Havre? Yes, I do. Yeah. yeah, I love that game. That yeah. would be one of my favorites. Like, I like that a lot. Okay, uh, good. I, like, I if like I was just recommend, hey, here's yeah. a general economic game, I think Le Havre might be, a, a, like, a classic for me. Yeah, like, whenever people say, hey, what's what's your favorite turn some resources into other resources game? Right. That's the one I always think of. Like, like yeah. it's just so tight and interesting and... And varied, too. Like, and a, any given yeah. game varies with the industries that come out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, you know what? I screwed up the scheduling, so I'm going to go run and talk to Mike Pullman now uh, about, uh, you know, we'll find out what it's about. And then, Hassan, I will see you in two weeks. Sounds great. And my name is Mike Pullman, and I am not playing Monster Slaughter. Oh, what is that even? It is a game where you play monsters attacking a cabin full of teens. Oh, right, right. Slasher movie thing, right? Well, I actually right. I picked it up recently, so I'm going to be playing it soon, but I have not played it yet. Oh, so it's new? Uh, it's been out for a couple months, but I uh, I decided to pick it up because it looks right. interesting. I look, I look forward to hearing it. Is it a one versus many kind of thing? No, it's uh, it's essentially a co-op. Well, <gasps> sort of co-op. Everyone is is playing against the uh, the teens in the cabin. And then when it's not your turn, other people make the teens do something against you. Oh, so you would need someone controlling. The teens aren't an AI thing. No, it's uh, okay. the, whoever's not active is controlling them. What's it's like a what's that horrible there's there's like 50 of them it's zombies you just roll a d6 it might actually be called zombies yeah, i think it's called, it's called zombies with yeah. a couple explanation points exactly uh, i remember thinking that's cool in theory but then the thing is it's multi like like you do your move and then everyone else has to move the zombies when it's not their turn uh, so the zombie i mean zombies don't need an ai but in that game uh, the players have to play the zombies and the humans so it's right. weird well, you're not playing. Oh, uh, I want to ask you what I asked Hassan. If you had, to, first of all, do you know the game Brass at all? It's kind of esoteric. I do. I've actually been waiting for the whichever one's the newer one, uh, Birmingham. So it's Birmingham. Lancashire? Yeah, I, like I confuse Birmingham and Lancashire. Birmingham is the one that I've got though, and I think the better one. Yeah, and that, I've been waiting for it to come back in. There hasn't been a reprint in a while because I want to pick it up because it looked really interesting to me. Oh, is it hard to find? Do you it know? is currently hard to find. Cool. I always like it when I have a game and discover that it's hard to find. Uh, not that I would sell it or anything, but I like now I can lord it over people who don't have it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's some companies that just only do print runs once or twice a year, and in the in between, it's just there's no way to get it. Right. And then, oops, accidentally, it's a good game. Lots of people want it. Right. <laughs> All right. So then, if you had to pick a favorite Martin Wallace game, go. Uh, I've only played a handful, but mm-hmm. I actually uh, I really like Steam, which is just a train game and you know building routes and taking stuff around the board. So Steam was one sh- railroad tycoon, wasn't it, or or vice versa? Did it become railroad? What? Uh, I get so confused with the old Martin Wallace games that get reprinted and rebranded and renamed. It says it re-implemented Age of Steam. Oh well, okay, that's not. There was I a. Did not play. Okay, yeah, I didn't. That's beyond. I don't. That's the thing is, even Martin Wallace fans like me, there are huge swaths of Martin Wallace games that I haven't played. So, <laughs> yep. Uh, all right. So uh, you are playing something that I 
uh, am fascinated by, first of all, I want to know what on earth made you pick this up and what is it? I picked up Leaving Earth, which mm -hmm. is a boutique game about the space race from the 50s through the 70s. Um, it's made by this company, I think they're in California, and this guy does all the art and he prints it himself. So it's, you know, it's kind of just this handmade thing that's very cool, has really good art. And I was just intrigued by the subject matter and honestly the the artwork on all the cards and stuff. It looked looked great. It is it is quite the, uh, visually like you just show somebody the the components or or like you said the artwork, the box even, and because yep. it, it looks like those those old uh, high concept sci-fi novels, just right. that that sort of look on there. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and what did you discover inside this box? First of all, how did you get into the box? Um, so I actually we have this as a demo. Uh, at our store, so I grabbed the one that was off the shelf to try, mm -hmm. um, and it was uh, just one side of it was cut open and kind oh. of open like a flap. So someone did it correctly because I only found out afterwards that that's the way you're supposed to do it. I I'm, I was loath to do it, but I just assumed you're supposed to cut both sides. So my copy uh. now is like a shoebox where the <laughs> lid just falls off. It, yeah, mine, mine's more like a more like a hinge. Exactly, you did it right. Yeah. Oh, um, all right, so uh, you actually got into it, pulled it out, and then what happened? So I I uh, tried it. I read the rules several times because there's a lot to it. Um, I played it solo to kind of learn the rules. I, I do want to play it multiplayer. It is, well, just a first step back, as a, part of my background, I'm an engineer, so I like math. And this is a very heavy uh -huh. game on math and planning and kind of engineering in a way. Mm -hmm. um, you have to... It, it tries to be realistic as far as uh, this mechanic of how much thrust you need versus how much mass you have on a rocket you're building. So you do these calculations, uh, kind of working backwards, and the manual walks you through it. You know, if I want to send a guy to the moon and back, you start with, okay, the last thing he's going to do is land on Earth, and that's going to take a little bit of power to get him there because all that's left is, you know, a capsule and a rocket. Then you go, you kind of step back, um, you know, from going back into the moon orbit, and then you're on the moon, then you landed on the moon before that. And in each of these steps, you plan what you need for how much uh, propulsion you need. And then it kind of, as you're figuring out, I need 20 points of propulsion. Well, that rocket added some mass to the step right before it. So it's kind of this logic flow of, uh, of f figuring out math and how you're going to launch something and get it there and back. Because eventually, you have to work your way back to whatever you're going to throw off of Earth into orbit. Like, Correct. that's what you got to figure out. How much junk do I have to get up there to get where I'm going and then leave where I've arrived and then get back here? Uh, right. And it is. It's so – like, I don't I, – I don't know. Do real, I guess real rocket scientists have to do it that way as well. But it's it was so different from how I think a board game might generally abstract that. Like, it was just – unmitigated thrust and mass calculations like yep. like like you said math you you literally need scratch paper to play this game like you have to do columns of numbers uh, yep. as you play this game yeah <laughs> exactly and uh the the other factor in your calculations is each maneuver say getting from earth into orbit has a difficulty number and it's that number times the mass of whatever you're moving is how much thrust it needs so, for example, to get from Earth all the way into orbit, it's an eight difficulty. So if I had 50 uh, maths, uh, that's 400 worth of thrust I need on the thing just to move it. Mm -hmm. so, and then they provide a little chart on your uh, kind of reference sheet of you can look up, all right, that's difficulty five, and I'm currently moving this much stuff, so I need this much thrust. 
and that's kind of helps you plan it. Uh, and then, you, like you said, you do it backwards. Now, um, uh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say what what uh, what makes it random is the components you end up researching uh, to build this rocket. Uh, start with a couple cards on them, telling you whether or not they're successful or failures. Uh, and you don't know. So if let's say I buy a Soyuz rocket, I get three cards. It's a blind draw. I don't know what they are. They could all be successes. They could be all failures. And you don't know until you start trying if it's going to work or not. And then as you're drawing these cards, as you use the rockets, you can pay to remove them permanently. So then it goes down to only a pool of two cards and one and then zero. And if you actually remove them all, um, then it's always successful. It's kind of like you, you put it through the rigors of testing. Right. You're literally throwing uh, whatever you're building into the air to see if it blows up, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, when you played Solitaire, uh, how did that go? And what did you, what did you try to uh, – what did you attempt? So I randomly picked some missions. I picked uh, normal difficulty. Um, I had uh, some really easy missions. One was just get a man in space and back. Uh, one was getting a lunar sample. Uh, and then some of the harder ones I had, I had to get a sample from Phobos. Uh, and that is, I think, five or six steps. So you, there's these square cards you kind of lay out in this like, this predetermined, um, you know, like Earth is at the bottom, then Moon, and then Mars is further. Um, and essentially Earth to Phobos is about as far as you can possibly get in the uh, in the base set. Um, so I, by the time I <laughs> I calculated the rocket, it was just this enormous thing that had like two Saturn rockets and it was just absurd. <laughs> so I actually, uh, I didn't complete that one. Um, then there is a tech you can research called rendezvous, which lets you launch things in pieces and then attach them in space to kind of save on a lot of the parts you need just getting into orbit in the first place. So you can kind of, it's smaller. And, uh, one of the way you do is you lay, lay, lay out random achievements you're trying to meet. And in order to win a solitaire game, you have to meet a certain, is it like a score value or one from each category? Um, in the rules, it just says you need to ha- have earned more points than are left. So you need to get ah, over right. half, over knock half. half of them off the board. Right. Yep. Right. Um, um, right. So, so I, you probably I, I, could have I, just done Phobos and that would have done it. Right. Correct. Cause I think yeah. that one was 14 points or something really high. Um, I didn't finish my game. Um, I got to the point where I was planning Phobos, and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't possibly do this without Rendezvous. Uh, I got a pretty good idea for the game. <laughs> now, I don't I don't know if the, one of the aha moments I went through, and I don't even think I figured this out on my own. I think I read uh, the developer's name, I think is Joseph Facella. I, re- I read something that he posted and had a no-duh moment where I was calculating, okay, you get a, a huge rocket and you send it to Mars, that's... One of, that's the first step you got to do, and then, you know you're working backwards to figure this out. But then whatever's arrived on Mars, that now needs to take off from Mars to go back to Earth. Mm-hmm. So not only are you sending a big thing to Mars, but what you land on Mars has to be big enough to take off from Mars and then get all that junk back to Earth. Right. Well, and the way the real space program works, and I think certainly the way the lunar landing worked – Everything you send to Mars doesn't have to land on Mars. You send a bunch of junk to Mars and leave the heavy stuff in orbit and then just land the little capsule with the dude on it with just enough to get the capsule back up without having to land all the fuel you need to get back to Earth and slow down before you enter Earth orbit. Like there's just this idea. I'm thinking you work your way backwards and each step of the way has to use everything that's been accumulated. But there are these little steps where you just leave things in orbit and only use what you need a little bit at a time, which was a 
that's just say I think if you don't realize that you're just doomed to fail in this game and never achieve any of the really difficult objectives. Yeah, and that was I had the same realization when I kind of did it the hard way, calculating my Phobos mission and back. Right. And that's when I realized, oh, I need this one that lets me combine or, or uh, you know, dock and undock parts, so I could right. launch there and send a little piece down. <laughs> now, when you were doing the testing, because this idea is you assemble all these components, and certain types of rockets give you more thrust, uh, mm -hmm. and then you have to test the individual rockets to deplete that pool of possible failures. Uh, mm -hmm. Were you leaving any chance, or were you just taking whatever it took to go all the way through the deck and get a 100% chance? So this is, this is kind of brings in another interesting part of the game where you get 25 million dollars per year to spend on your stuff, and you don't you can't carry it over, so it's your yearly budget. And I found myself almost always short of money to be actually be able to pay to remove cards, <laughs> because mm -hmm. by the time I built all these things together and was you know hired an astronaut and had everything ready to go, I'd have like three million dollars left so essentially three singles and you need at least five to remove those cards so i almost i was only able to do that once <laughs> because i was always so short of money because i was trying to do things kind of quickly which is an interesting uh comparison to history like everyone you know throwing money and trying to do as fast as possible but it becomes dangerous and certainly when you play as a multiplayer game, I think it's very much uh, a race in terms of who's going to be – if you're going to be safe, it's going to take longer. If you're going to be quick, it's going to be more dangerous. Yep. And I think one of my issues too is if you just get lucky with that whole deck of possible failures, I mean that that's what would determine who wins the game ultimately. Right. Uh, if you get lucky with that, it doesn't matter how well the other guy planned his thing if he's trying to be safe. If you're risky and you get lucky, you pretty much – uh, get to an objective before someone else and get those points. Uh, yep. Now, they yeah. do have a mechanism where in multiplayer, uh, as soon as you complete an objective, everyone else gets 10 million extra for the remainder of that. Oh, right, year. right. The idea, yeah, exactly. The idea is their agencies feel like, ah, we have to catch up. Here's more right. money. Right, right. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed the game. I'm a little concerned that over the long term, people are going to figure out, you know, the optimum way to do certain missions. And then it, you know, if you play this enough, it's going to come down to just randomness because everyone's going to know, all right, I need these eight things to go to the moon and back, right? Right. Or this and there's no randomness in terms of other than uh, the the failure rates. Like, you're not rolling dice when your ships are moving or anything. Right. It's just whether or not it blows up when you use a given rocket, and you can test that randomness out of the game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, I'm a little worried long term that, uh, yeah, that... People are going to know optimum routes, but gen, you know, I don't think I'll play it enough with other people for that to happen. So I'm, I do want to play it and try it with you know, three four players and see how it all goes. And here's where uh, one of my favorite – this is the actual – the thing, the one thing that made me interested in this game and get it. I mean I loved the artwork. I like the concept. I don't even mind that much doing the math because it's so completely different than other games. It's almost like a roll and write game without the rolling because <laughs> you definitely <laughs> right. write the math. Um, but the thing that really intrigued me about it is – each of the locations that you can visit has multiple cards, and you draw one of them and put it face down, and when you arrive, you flip it over to see things like, hey, is there life on Mars? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you can find different things, and even I think one of them, wasn't one of them like, hey, Phobos is an alien space station? Like, that was, a, that was the super wacky one, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, the one in my game, the moon had um, some bacteria on it, right? So I would have gotten... There's one of the objectives, which is find uh, uh, life off of Earth. So just bringing that back was, would, uh, would complete that. But it doesn't show up all the time. I think there's four right. different moon cards, so you don't, and you don't know what they are. 
and uh, and there I think is where some of the randomness. Uh, yeah, it, you might quickly solve how to get to the moon in you know three steps that are the same every time, but mm-hmm. you're not entirely sure what's going to be waiting for you at the moon or at Phobos uh, or, or at Mars. Uh, and I do love that idea. Um, and there are um, there's a couple expansions for it too. Right, um, I know. I was I was just looking at these and I'm like, hmm, super tempted. Okay, so what are they? Uh, one adds uh, one's called stations. Adds uh, the ability to create space stations in uh, space. Mm-hmm. And the other one adds more planets, uh, outer planets, so um, things beyond Mars to land on and explore. So. Which imagine the crazy stuff that could be out there, Mike. Like if Phobos right. could be a hollow alien space station. Good lord, Neptune, Pluto, I mean, what? What could be out there? Who knows? Right, I, I've seen the expanse. There could be some alien life out there. Right. See? See? Exactly. This has been documented previously on the Sci-Fi <laughs> Channel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what? What does? Do you know offhand what building space stations does? Just, I, I don't. guess another another uh, way to to boost yourself out into orbit or out yeah, into space. Yeah, I, I think right. it's just more technologies and stuff to assemble, and um, I believe it has ability to start creating and assembling those in space instead of just on earth right so i want to mention two other games i don't know if you know either of these uh both of which i have only one of which i i've ever actually played uh there's a a gmt game called um space corp do you know that one at all I do not know that. So Space Corp, I think, was just last year, and it's the same basic thing as Leaving Earth, but as more of a kind of chit-based, almost war game, because that's kind of what GMT does. Right. Uh, But it's the same thing where you start on Earth, and you go out into the inner planets. You know, you can go into orbit an Earth and set up stations, you can go to the moon, and you're using chits, and there are types of bases. It's nowhere near as complicated as leaving Earth. But what it does is a really cool thing where it is a three-act game, mm-hmm. where the first person to reach uh, the, the asteroid belt uh, gets a little award. He gets a little token that says, hey, you were first. And everybody plays until a certain number of victory can, of, of these achievements are met, and then that era ends. And then you flip over the board, and now it's got all the outer planets as well, and the scale of the game changes, where the components are the same, the actions are the same, uh, but it'll fold in a new rule, uh, and I forget specifically, oh, outer space radiation uh, Mm -hmm. is an issue once you flip over to the outer planets, um, and everything that you've earned up to this point you keep, and whoever got that first player gets a minor boost. Uh, and then in the outer planets, whoever leaves the solar system first, they get a little token that says, hey, I got it first. And then when all those achievements are met, you bring over a third board, and that is interstellar travel and colonization. Um, and that changes the rules even more. It adds, it's again, the same basic actions, the same dynamics, but new systems for multi-star uh, star systems or multi-planet uh, systems. Um, so I, I love the concept and how the three acts work. Uh, I feel, though, like it kind of overstays its welcome a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. It really draws out into a longer-term game, mm-hmm. uh, and, and especially because it's folding in new dynamics, but the basics of what you're doing are pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has none of, by the way, the evocative, imaginative, imaginative stuff that Leaving Earth has. None of the artwork... Even the colonies, like it's got a super dry war gamey element to it. The actions you're doing are just like, you know, move, land, search. Like <laughs> it's, just, it's just a card with a verb on it and a random splash of artwork. So yep. I feel like it, the theming and the, even the colonies you build, they don't have names. It's just like a, here's a times two score colony. <laughs> and you put it down. Um, 
So I, I love that in concept, uh, but very wargaming, a little bit too dry, uh, and uh, yeah, so not nearly as um, mysterious and evocative as, as Leaving Earth. So I, here, I really like those. Mm-hmm. I really like those games that have the multi-stage boards. Um, uh, the recent Die Hard game. Right, right, right. Well, I exactly. Think, I, don't, I don't think it's a great. I've heard that it's an amazing game or anything, but it has you know some different acts of the movies and the board unfolds. It, it's uh, super then, thrilling, but this idea, yeah. though, that you kind of have to learn a new game with the right. stage, I think can be daunting for some players. I mm-hmm. find that pretty exciting, though. Yeah. Yeah. And I know the, the Big Trouble in Little China game did that, too, where the oh. first part of the – yeah, the one side of the board is you running around the streets, uh, you know, fighting guys and stuff. And then later you're in Lopan's Lair, which is the bottom side of the board. I like I like that. I did not realize that. Yeah. You know, isn't there a Big Trouble in Little China uh, legendary deck-building game? I think there is. I have not played the legendary game. I played the the board game though. It's it's actually more fun than I expected. Okay, yeah. So I was confusing. The, I know I was confusing the two for a while, but the, yeah. So this isn't the legendary thing. It's a, no, it's the, a separate the board game. game. It's been out I think two year and a half or so. Right. Uh, but it's basically a dice allocation game. We roll things and allocate to, to different skills. And you're the different characters, I guess. Mm-hmm. Why yep. doesn't everybody want to be Jack Burton? It's well, it's random who you get, so. <laughs> Oh, I don't want to play if I can't be Jack Burton. You can but... be his little sidekick guy who's really good. <laughs> no, at... I don't want to be that guy. Oh. <laughs> or you can be, uh, what was his name, Egg Shen, who has magic. No. Okay, I'll be, <laughs> if I can be Kim Cattrall, uh, then I'll play. <laughs> yep. yeah. uh, all right, so the other space game that I just find, I, I, I love looking at the board because it just looks like a spirograph crazy bunch of circular lines and planets, and it's Phil Eklund's High Frontier. Um which is nuts. You look at that game, and it's insane. Uh, eventually, you read the rules, and you can kind of look through all the mess and see, ah, this is what the board is representing. And even it can maybe, I suspect, become playable. Uh, but the problem is teaching it to someone. Phil Eklund games, they kind of don't care about learning curves. He just designs a game and documents it, and then it's up to you to process the information. He just throws it in your lap and is like, here, I made this. Figure it out. Uh, this is a this is a 4.75 weight on board game geek. Out <laughs> of five, and, and, right, yeah, that's, I, that's yeah. one of the highest scores I've ever seen. Yeah, it's insanely heavy, and there's all these different uh, kind of different modules you can fold in. And I like too that you're playing. Aren't you specific space agencies and leaving Earth, or did I make that up? No, you are. You're each country, so you're NASA or the Russian space agency, and so on. Is there any asymmetry? Uh, no. Oh, okay, so it is because because there's serious asymmetry in High Frontier in mm-hmm. terms of which space agency you are. Um, in leaving Earth, can your astronauts die or get killed? Oh yeah, yep. In fact, there's you know we mentioned exploring before. There's sometimes you explore those cards and they'll just die. So it's smarter to send a probe first. Right, know right, right. And I've oh I have a funny story about that. So during my mm-hmm. game. Uh, it was a little weird to me that the surveying card you need, you only start with one um, failure or success card on it. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there playing, and I Google the rules for this. And I find a question on Board Game Geek asking the same thing, and it was you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. So I did, I, did, I, did I correctly answer it? Did I answer it, or did it got answered for me, it, I guess? It got answered for you. And it, yeah. at first, I didn't even look at who posted it until in the middle of this text, it said Dagamit. Like you like to say, <laughs> that, hey, well, it's Tom. <laughs> it's not a commonly used term, yeah. Uh, in High Frontier, one of the asymmetries you have with the different space agencies, uh, you're moving around uh, 
your astronauts and you can't like the rules you you literally like your the rules prohibit doing things that will endanger your astronauts that might benefit you in in gameplay because if an astronaut dies it kind of sucks but sometimes it might be worth doing something and getting an astronaut killed in terms of points and high frontier basically says you, you look you can't do that if it's going to get an astronaut killed you're just prohibited from doing it unless you're playing and i forget if it's the chinese or the russians but one of those space agencies that represents an authoritarian or thug government that doesn't care about human life like they're allowed to do things to get their astronauts killed uh, uh -huh. like that kind of asymmetry is in there that's an um, interesting twist yeah. Uh, yeah and it also has a lot of weird uh, like rather than just being a race game you can fight each other's ships and shoot like lasers at their colonies and it's all putatively hard science uh, mm -hmm. it gets a little crazy but I don't it's not wacky stuff like Phobos is a hollow alien space station uh, he's got in each card like detailed speculative science for why this laser would blow up a colony you know that kind of stuff and that's oh. like a, a Phil Eklund game too is even if you never play it fascinating reading the, the kind of stuff he comes up with so, so have you actually played this gotten it to the table or you just have read it i was given so there was a second edition that was recently released uh mm -hmm. which i'm super jealous of because it's beautiful but i received as a christmas gift once because it's the sort of thing that i knew i would never be able to get anyone to play mm -hmm. uh, and so someone gave me as a christmas gift a copy of the first edition and i have it and i've considered maybe trying to get people to play but we just play planet corp instead uh, okay. which is more manageable. Yeah. Looks but like I do love a... it, and I love laying out that map and looking at all the orbit lines, and it's just insane. Yeah. There's a fourth edition coming out next year for it. Oh, maybe it's time. Here. Maybe it's time, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Wow. All right, Leaving Earth, uh, is this something that you plan to try to get people to play? Yeah. Um, uh, my sister specifically <laughs> has been interested in wanting to play it, so I, I kind of did this as a test run to learn the rules. So um, I think next time we get, to, we get together, we're going to try multiplayer. And she knows that it's going to involve each of you putting your head down into a notepad and just doing math problems, right? I, I told her that, so and, you know she's not usually real big on math, so hopefully she likes it, but she loves the the subject matter, so I think it'll. Right. I, think, right. I think she'll like enjoy it. Right. All right. Well, good luck with that. I look forward to hearing uh, how that goes then. Yeah. All right. Uh, all right, so uh, thanks everyone for listening. We will be back in two weeks, and next time all three of us will be together. It'll be super exciting, and we'll talk to you then. I'm Tom Chick. I've been here with Hassan Lopez, Mike Pullman, and we'll see you guys next time. Cheers.